0: Hello and welcome to Crofting Matters. My name is Siobhan MacDonald and this is the Farm Advisory Service Series where we discuss topics that matter in crofting. We have a delicate subject this week. I know the topic of wills and succession is a topic that causes much heartache and stress for people. And in my job, I spend quite a lot of time trying to sort out the subsidies and croft transfers. And it's a stressful process when folk are already feeling a range of emotions. On top of that, crofting is well known for having complicated rules and regulations. So in this episode, we're joined by Brian Inkster, who many of you will know is a solicitor specialising in crofting law. He's also the author of the very good practical guide to crofting law and is secretary of the Crofting Law Group. Brian is also an active member of the Scottish Government's group who are at the moment looking at crofting law reform. Hello, Brian, how are you?
1: Morning, Svon. I'm very good, thank you.
0: There's not much disguising your accent on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> whereabouts in Shetland are you from?
1: I'm from the village of Scalloway.
0: Ah, and are you from a croft?
1: Uh, no. My father was a fisherman. They say in Shetland, the difference between Shetlanders and Orcadians is that a Shetlander is a fisherman with a croft, whereas an Orcadian is a farmer with a boat. <laughs> um, but although although my father was a fisherman, he didn't have a croft, his father, so my grandfather, had crofts on Borough Isle, uh, where my father came from. But those crofts were inherited at that time, many moons ago, uh, as was often the case by the eldest son. Uh, and my father wasn't the eldest son, so the crofts went to the eldest son, who uh, was both a fisherman and a crofter. And my father was a just a fisherman and not a crofter.
0: So what sparked your interest in crofting law?
1: So I studied law at Edinburgh University and then I moved in 1991 to Glasgow to start my traineeship with a law firm. And at that time, crofting law had never really, wasn't something that was in my mind as something I was going to be doing in Glasgow. But in my time working for the firm i was working in in glasgow which was for probably about eight years i started getting a lot of work from shetland so i was building up work although i was sitting in glasgow people were contacting me to begin with family and friends and it sort of grew from there and crafting law kept popping up as a topic because even just in land transactions you know even just a house passing there was the question of it being decrofted or resumed from crofting tenure. So, crofting kept popping up, and it wasn't something that you ever did at university or knew anything particularly about. But it became apparent to me very early on that if I was going to be doing legal work in Shetland, even from Glasgow, I needed to know a bit about crofting law.
0: If we could go through a few examples of different things that might happen if a crofter passes away or if somebody's thinking about a living transfer. But before we do that, could you explain some of the terms that are used? Because I think that'll make it easier then when we go on. So starting with an executor, what's an executor? What do they do?
1: So the executor is someone who's appointed to administer the state and the winding up of the state. So they're in charge of making sure everything is done properly and legally. And if someone makes a will, they would appoint an executor or they can appoint more than one executor or they can appoint an executor whom failing another executor uh, if something happens to the first one. Generally, it is common to appoint the main beneficiary as the executor because the main beneficiary in the will has most of the interest in making sure the will is carried out as it should be. Uh, and there's nothing to stop you appointing the beneficiary in a will. And typically, say you have a husband and wife who each make a will, generally they would appoint one another as executors, whom failing probably their children. You know, So that would be quite common way of doing it. But also you can appoint a solicitor as an executor although we never really suggest that you should. I think some solicitors might say that, you know, you should appoint the solicitor as an executor, but I think it's probably better having the beneficiary as an executor. The solicitor will still be administering the estate, but then the beneficiary who's also the executor can be more in charge of making sure things happen. But, you know, sometimes people don't have a particular person that they want, to appoint as executor and are quite happy in those circumstances to have a solicitor as executor or to have a solicitor as a joint executor if you have not made a will appointing an executor and you die without a will then that's called intestacy if you've made a will it's called testate succession if you've not made a will it's intestate succession if there's no will being made then you have to seek to have an executor appointed through the court, so you have to go to the sheriff court and lodge a petition to have a executor appointed, and that executor would normally be the closest next of kin who would normally be appointed, so it would be you know a spouse or a a child. If
0: a crofter is writing a will, do they need to have it witnessed? What's the process of writing a will and making sure that it's all ok?
1: Yeah, so a formal will that would be classed as um, self-proving, which means that you know if it was challenged in any way, it would be shown to be a legitimate will, should really be witnessed. An informal writing might have some effect, but really you would want the will to be properly drawn up and witnessed. Um, so that means one adult, independent witness who would normally not be one of the beneficiaries in the will, but would be independent from the will, would witness it. Also a little peculiarity about wills compared with other documents that may need to be signed, is that a will must be signed on every single page. So not just the last page where the witness signs, but if the will is made up of five pages, then the first four pages all needs to be signed at the bottom by the person making the will, And the last page needs to be signed by both them and the witness.
0: You hear the term beneficiaries, and you mentioned beneficiaries there. What are beneficiaries of a will?
1: So the beneficiaries are the people who are named in the will as benefiting from the state. So you would normally have a situation where you have specific legacies that are being given to specific beneficiaries. So you might have a situation where you are specifying, say, that Dwelling house goes to my wife, the car goes to one of my daughters, and the you usually then have a kind of... Once you've dealt with anything that you are specifically leaving, which could be any amount of things that you want to go to specific parties, then you have a residue clause, which is basically saying anything that's left goes to the following beneficiaries, which might be one person, or it might be split amongst a combination of people or it may be split evenly between a a group of people or it could be done in different percentages so you've usually got these specific legacies that go to specific beneficiaries who are specifically named and then you'd have a residue clause that leaves anything left to maybe the same beneficiaries that have received some of the specific legacies or maybe different ones and again you would have to specifically name those beneficiaries
0: So, Brian, I wondered if we could start with, say, a straightforward case. Then if I could make it increasingly complicated as we go on and see what happens in each one. In my first scenario, I have a crofter who passes away. They had one croft and they were a tenant of it. And they had one relation in the world and they left a will, a proper will signed on each page, naming that person to inherit the croft and the grazing share. So, what's the process?
1: Okay, so it's a tenant in this case, we're speaking about a tenanted croft. So clearly where there's a tenancy involved, there's a landlord involved and there are regulatory issues involving the Crofting Commission. But there's a will involved, so it's a test date case. And in that case situation, there's a time limit of one year in which to notify the landlord and the crofting commission who is entitled to succeed to the crafting tenancy. And that can be pretty much done immediately. There's no need to wait for any other formalities. And given that you've got a year in which to do it, there's no point hanging around and that's just something that you could do almost immediately by notifying the landlord of who the new tenant is and notifying the commission of who that new tenant is. Uh, And that's just a matter that would then, you know, it can't be objected to, it's just a matter that it's a formality. So, uh, you know, the landlord has to accept that person as tenant. There would be formalities that the executor would have to deal with as part of the state, which is obtaining confirmation to the state which is a legal process through the sheriff court where all the assets of the deceased is listed in an inventory uh, and there's a form that gets submitted to the sheriff court which gets approved by the court and would include things like bank accounts and any other assets that are held movable items and so on and Once that formal document is obtained, then the executor can deal with winding up the estate. But as far as the crofting tenancy goes, really all they have to do is uh, that notification at the outset and whilst the, the item of estate would be listed on the confirmation, there's no further real procedure that they have to go through to effect the transfer.
0: And how long does all of that take?
1: It will depend on the size of the state and what else is involved because at the the outset of any administration of any state, you have to write to all the financial companies, insurance companies, banks, Mm -hmm. government, anywhere that you need to gather in financial information from. And sometimes you can wait a while for some of that information to come through. Uh, I can think of any state we're dealing with at the moment where in early May, I wrote a letter to a financial institution. By July, they still hadn't replied. And we had to send the recorded delivery letter to them, and they replied the next day. But it took a recorded delivery letter to get the response out of them. So sometimes these things can take a while, and until you gather all the information, you can't compile the inventory. You need every single piece of financial information gathered together before you can complete the inventory and submit that to the court. You sometimes get situations where something's been missed out because the solicitor's not been told about it and no one's known about it and it crops up at a later date. And in those circumstances, that can be added in later through a process called an eek to the confirmation. That's EIK, where you do a separate document which gets lodged to the court to effectively extend the inventory that you had previously submitted and i have seen that sometimes happening in croft situations where somebody comes and tells you that they've got three crofts but they forget about the fourth one that no one's <laughs> that yeah. that they haven't listed and so you might have to end up doing an eek to include that fourth croft
0: and what about things like tractors and livestock and entitlements
1: those are all movable items rather as heritable and You would want to specifically, if you were making a will, you would want to specifically mention those in the will. And it would clearly make sense for those items to go with whoever you were bequeathing the croft to. If you failed to specifically mention those, they would arguably fall part of the residue of the estate and would be dealt with as part of the residue clause if you hadn't specifically mentioned them earlier on. If you've specifically specified you're leaving the croft to some uh, one person and also your residue clauses to that one person then everything would go to that one person so in your scenario with with one person being left the croft if that same one person is being left everything then actually you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to have a specific bequeathed a croft, because if you just said a will saying, I'm leaving everything to Siobhan, then everything would go to Siobhan uh, regardless. Uh, it would only be if you were breaking stuff up to different parties that you would need to be very clear that any movable items that form part of the croft went with the croft to avoid a situation an unintended consequence where that might end up going to somebody else.
0: Um, something that's maybe worth mentioning as well as entitlements because in the old system they would have gone with the land but now they go with the crofter rather than the land so that's something else
1: so so again you would want to specifically mention that Mm -hmm. in the will you know again if you weren't just leaving everything to one person if you were breaking things up in the will again that would probably be a line that would go along with the you know leaving the croft and you know Whatever movable items go with the croft, uh, you'd probably list those for the voids of any doubt and, and also specifying the entitlements as well.
0: So, say we have the same crofter tenant, one relation in the world, but they don't leave a will. What happens then?
1: So, in that scenario, if they've just got the one relation who would be entitled on intestacy to inherit their estate, then firstly, As I said earlier, if you've not made a will, then there's no executor being appointed. So you would have to go through the process I mentioned earlier where you would have to petition the court to appoint an executor. You would probably be seeking to appoint that one beneficiary as executor because that's the obvious person and probably the only real person that could be executor. So they would have to be appointed executor in the first instance before they could do anything because they would have no ability to deal with the state until they had been petitioned and approved by the court as being an executor. Once you had done that, then uh, in an intestate case, you have a period of two years in which to notify the landlord and the commission of uh, who is who the croft is being transferred to. Um, unlike a test date case where it's one year and whilst you have that two-year period it used to be thought and there was case law that had said this uh and i'll try and explain this but if you get a bit confused or lost just interrupt and ask me and i'll try and clarify it because it gets a little bit complicated okay so at one point a few years ago the perceived uh wisdom um via land court judgments was that um you had to get confirmation first so i'd spoken before about how in a testate case you had to get confirmation at some point but also in intestate case you still need to get confirmation and that once you would got the confirmation from the court you then had to get a certificate of confirmation relating to the croft And a certificate confirmation is just issued by the court particular to that one item of estate on the inventory so it would be like an extract from the whole confirmation but just specifying the croft and then on the back of that uh, certificate of confirmation you would type up a docket which would be stating that the item on that certificate being whatever croft it was was being transferred to, and you would name the beneficiary uh, in your example the one person who had uh was inheriting on intestacy, and the executor would have to sign that and only once you had done that process could you then intimate to the landlord and the crofting commission that the transfer to that person had happened. And so all that would have to happen within the two year period. And if it happened out with the two year period, you would run the risk of the landlord being able to seek to terminate the lease. Now, there was a case that went through the land court on exactly that circumstance where the procedure that I've just described hadn't been carried out timeously and the landlord sought to terminate the lease. And the Scottish land Court, going on what had been decided previously, stated that that was correct. That was very unfortunate for the inheriting crofter, who in that case was a nephew, that they were not going to inherit the croft, but they should have followed the procedures and they failed to follow the procedures properly. But they had notified, so the landlord knew that that they had the entitlement to inherit, but they hadn't done the confirmation and the signing on the back of the the certificate. The case was appealed to the court of session, and the court of session, I think that was just last year or the year before, It's quite recent, not that long ago anyway. The court of session disagreed with the land court and said that the act of informing the landlord was sufficient and you didn't have to sign a docket transfer so the kind of perceived wisdom that we understood to be the case is no longer the case and so in an intestate case it's no it's actually no different from a test case in that you can almost immediately although probably you would have to wait for the executor to be appointed because there'd be nobody to actively do it you can almost immediately just notify the landlord and the crofting commission of who the tenant is going to be under succession and that's sufficient and it's seen as though the subsequent confirmation sort of ratifies that but without there being any need to sign docket transfers Okay. So that and that's quite a recent change in how the law of succession has been seen to to operate. It was September twenty twenty two, so it was just last September that the Court of Session made that decision.
0: Goodness. Because everything does take ages, doesn't it? It's already a stressful time for people and they've got lots to sort out. And this is another thing and by the time you've written to folk and got answers back just takes forever and two years passes in a flash.
1: Uh Although, given uh, this latest court of session ruling, you know, the fact that you now know that you don't have to do a lot of process first before notifying the landlord is good, because you can pretty much do that at a very early stage and you know that that box has been ticked and that the landlord cannot then seek to terminate the tenancy at the end of the two-year period. In any succession case involving the tenancy of a croft, notify landlord and the crofting commission as soon as you can.
0: Good advice. So then what happens if we've got a crofter, tenant? They leave a will and they want to leave the croft to two people. One croft to two people. Is that possible and what happens?
1: We're still speaking about a tenant at croft here, yes? Yes. So, historically, it wasn't possible. You could only leave it to one person, but there was a change in the law that allowed you to leave a tenancy to more than one person, but on the basis that you had to divide the croft first. So, if you've got a croft, and let's speak at the moment, we're just speaking about leaving it to two people rather than more than two people, you would have to specify in your will that you wanted the croft to be divided and you would have to make it clear as to how that division was going to take place the easiest way to do that would be to have a plan at the croft where you showed on the plan how you want it divided into two and that plan would have to be annexed and signed as a relative to the will that would be highly unusual in making wills it's very seldom you see people making wills and drawing up plans showing what they want but that would be the only real way of demonstrating what you want i have seen wills and were involved in a contested case at the moment that actually went to the land court whereby there was a division of a croft involved in a will There was no plan, but there was a sufficient description because there was a road that sort of divided the Croft in two. So there was a natural boundary that could basically say anything to the east of this road goes to so-and-so and and anything to the west goes to so-and-so. So So you could do it just by a a description in the will if you thought that description could be clear enough to have no doubt over what was being intended. But otherwise, and possibly in any event, it would be sensible to have a map delineating in one color the croft area you want to go to beneficiary A, and in another color, the one you want to go to beneficiary B. Now, that's all very well, because you've put that in a will, but the law says that the crofting commission have to agree to that division. An application has to be made by the executor to divide the croft in the way that the will has suggested and the Crofting Commission have to approve that and if the Crofting Commission approve it that then needs to be registered in the Crofting Register otherwise it's null and void so you have to go through that step you are therefore then hoping that the crofting commission are going to see that it's sensible to divide this croft but the crofting commission may take a view that isn't in the interest of the crofting for this croft to be split up for whatever reason maybe it's a very small croft and dividing it in two is going to make it not very viable or whatever so if the crofting commission were to reject that division application And you hadn't made any other provision in your will then effectively that element of the bequest would fall into intestacy and would be dealt with through the law of intestacy because it would be a failed bequest so in those circumstances you would need to have a fallback position in your will which would have to be that if uh, a sort of second clause saying if the Crofting Commission don't agree to this division, I want such-and-such to happen. And have an alternative clause, you know, spelling out something other, just in case the Crofting Commission refused the division to avoid it falling into intestacy, and maybe something unintended happening as a result with the Croft. You would also have to bear in mind that given the one-year notice provision, on test to see that all this would have to happen because that second clause, depending on how long the, the division application takes and how long the crofting commission take to approve it. And if they don't approve it, all of that would have to happen within one year. Otherwise the second clause would be invalid because you wouldn't have met your one year time limit if that was notifying somebody else to become tenant at the croft. So, It's fraught with problems. We'll maybe come on to discuss how in an owner-occupied situation it's maybe a lot easier and maybe somebody thinking about dividing a croft amongst two or more parties would be be more advisable for them to purchase the croft, become owner-occupier and then they can grant title to separate parties or combined so suppose you have two children you want both children to get the croft with a tenancy you couldn't do that unless you divided the croft because only one person can be the tenant whereas in an owner occupied situation you could leave it jointly to your two children and they would both have an equal one half pro indiviso share in that croft and it's a lot simpler and straightforward.
0: Or you divide the croft while yeah. you're still on this earth.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and of course, because of the Crofting Register, it takes nine months. So and nothing's affected. Nothing goes through until Crofting Register goes through. So that's a long time. Yeah. three quarters of a year.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. And all of that could have an impact on that one-year period. And maybe that's something for us to take to the Bill Group. Maybe that should be two years from the same ways as this mm-hmm. in an intestate situation, just to cover those. possibilities.
0: So you mentioned they are owner-occupiers. So if we have a crofter who's owner-occupier and they only have one relation in the world and they leave a will, they've been very good, they've left a will and they name that person to inherit the croft and the grazing share as well, better not forget that, then what's the process there then?
1: So it's a lot more straightforward because they have a heritable title to the croft They've made a will, so there's an executor that's been appointed in that will. There's no landlord, because it's owner-occupied, so there's no one to notify in the same way as there would be with a tenancy. And the crofting commission have no part to play in it. You're immediately taking a landlord and a crofting commission out of the equation, which is immediately making life a lot more easy. And there's no time limits affecting it in the same way as there would be with a tenancy. So uh, you would still need to obtain confirmation of the state through the sheriff court in the same way as I described earlier. And once you had obtained confirmation, then the executor would, well, the solicitor acting would prepare a disposition, which is a conveyance transferring the title from the executor to the beneficiary and the executor would sign that deed, and that deed would be registered in the land register, and you would also have to register the transfer in the crofting register.
0: So it's much simpler, but then if it's an owner-occupied croft, a grazing share won't be owner-occupied, it's always going to be tenanted. Not always. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. It gets complicated. Yeah, um,
0: of course it does, of course it does.
1: So you're going to ask me if there's a grazing share with that croft that's tenanted, then that would have to be dealt with separately, and that's completely yes. correct. So, but I think we need to probably cover my piece about the fact that a grazing share is not always tenanted, Yeah, that it can actually be a heritable right. And that depends on how the croft was first purchased from the landlord initially. Okay. So when you purchase a croft for the first time from a landlord, you can ask the landlord to include the grazing share as a heritable right. And if it is included as a heritable right, it appears in the disposition particularly specified as a part and pertinent that's being transferred heritably with the croft. If that happens, it no longer remains in tenancy. I say tenancy, but we'll put that in inverted commas because there's an argument that's not quite like a tenancy in the way that we would think of a tenancy. So that can happen. Now, you obviously weren't aware of that fact because you, and you're probably not aware of that fact because of where you live and the part of the Crofton counties you're in where you've probably never seen that happening. Whereas I come from Shetland, as we discussed earlier, and it's quite common in Shetland to see that happening.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And I'm not sure why the practice developed in Shetland of doing it from a heritable point of view, but certainly landlords in Shetland seemed quite happy to do that. And you have a situation where a lot of the titles for crofts in Shetland include the grazing share as a heritable right uh, rather as it being separated from the croft but i think that is quite peculiar to Shetland and isn't something that you see happening in other crofton counties but it can happen you know it's not something that can only happen in Shetland so if you had a landlord that was willing to sell the grazing share as a heritable right it's actually beneficial for everybody because it it keeps the the share attached to the croft rather than mm-hmm. it being separated from the croft, mm-hmm. and it means you don't have to deal with it separately, and it makes it a lot easier when it comes to issues like succession because then that grazing share just passes with the croft title. If you're in Shetland check your title deeds because your grazing share might be included. Even if you're elsewhere in the world, it may be included. And I have actually seen it on a rare occasion included elsewhere for specific reasons. So it's not completely unheard of outside Shetland, but it is probably a lot less common. If we go back to your earlier scenario of the crofting share is held separately from the croft, uh, now that is what is classed as a deemed croft. So people might have heard the word deemed croft being spoken about and a lot of people get quite confused about what a deemed croft is. Mm-hmm. Whilst we're not here to speak about deemed crofts, it's probably quite difficult, not which would be a whole topic in itself, uh, a whole podcast about deemed crofts would be possible. But on succession, you have to look at the fact that when a croft's been purchased and become owner-occupied, most of the time that grazing share won't be included as a heritable right and as a result of not being included as a heritable right in the purchase will become what's classed as a deemed croft and it's deemed under crofting legislation to be a deemed croft purely so it can be dealt with administratively and legally because it has become separated from the croft. When a grazing share is attached to the croft, it's never classed as a deemed share. In simple terms, it only becomes a deemed croft when it's in some way separated from the croft, which is what happens when a croft purchase happens for the first time, and you become owner-occupier of the croft, but you retain the grazing share as a deemed croft, and there's a rent attributed to that deemed croft and that you still need to pay for to get back to succession and the question of the will in this case we've got a will with an owner occupied croft a deemed grazing share croft and the will is specifying that it's all being left to one individual So I previously gave the scenario about how that was easy and simple with the owner-occupied croft. You then said, what about the grazing share? And if the grazing share is a deemed croft, that has to be dealt with in exactly the same way as the croft we spoke about earlier that was in tenancy. So that would need to be notified to the landlord within one year because there's a will in this situation and would have to then involve that notification to the Crofting Commission and the landlord before it would be effective.
0: Here's me thinking that that was going to be the simplest question.
1: (laughs) I think whenever anybody gets into deemed crofts, it becomes the most (laughs) complex of things to to get your head around.
0: And so to make it worse then, what would happen if that owner-occupier crofter and their grazing share, which is a deemed croft, what happens if they don't leave a will?
1: In this situation, they're not leaving a will, but there's only, am I correct in saying, are we still on one person? Yes, yes. one person. So there's one person who can inherit um, their closest relation, and uh, it's not a multiple beneficiary situation. So again, in that situation, it would just be a case of the executor needs to be appointed as executor through the sheriff court to transfer the croft because there's two bits, although it's all intestacy, there are two bits involved here. There is the owner-occupied croft and there's the deemed croft tenancy. They're dealing with them both separately. They would have to, with the croft, owner-occupied croft, same procedure as before, they have to get confirmation, then do a disposition transferring title. There's no time limits and there's no notification procedure involved with that, but with the deemed croft tenancy for the grazing share because we're in intestacy they have two years rather as one year to deal with that but again they just need to notify the landlord and the crofting commission and they can do that as soon as the executor's been appointed
0: we'll maybe go back to a tenanted situation then hopefully this is a simple one so crofter one croft they're a tenant they pass away they have a husband and they have five daughters, and they leave a will, naming the husband to inherit the croft and the grazing share. What's the process?
1: Because the tenancy is considered to be a heritable right, you can leave a heritable right to whoever you want to, effectively. The position becomes more complicated when you get into the question of movables and legal rights around movables. So so the husband has been left the croft. So that's fine. And it's no different from our earlier scenario about there being one sole person surviving because in the will you've nominated the husband to obtain the tenancy. The fact there's five daughters is neither here nor there because however many daughters or children there were is fairly irrelevant because you've decided to leave the croft to the husband. The husband gets the croft. And because it's a tenanted croft, it's the same procedure as we described earlier. It's a testate succession, so you'd have to notify the landlord and uh, commission within one year.
0: Same scenario. So our crofter passes away. She has a husband, she has five daughters, but she doesn't leave a will. What then?
1: So uh, if there's no will, then on intestacy, the husband would have the right to inherit due to the law and test to see. there's figures involved. So there's values that you could inherit up to um, from a heritable point of view. And I think it's something like 473,000 at the moment. So most Crofts are going to be within that. Although, given what you see, some of them yeah. selling for at the moment, maybe not. So you'd have to check at the time and get legal advice on the situation because it can become a little bit complicated due to the limits that you're entitled to inherit on from a, an intestacy point of view. But in simple terms, in the scenario you paint, the husband would be entitled to inherit that croft on intestacy, and the two-year time period would apply, an executor would have to be appointed, which would invariably be the husband through the court before he could deal with the state. And again, it would just be a case of notifying the landlord and the crofting commission that the husband was the new tenant.
0: Where you have no will and it's maybe not clear you know, who the croft is to be passed to, who decides in that situation where the croft should go? Is it the landlord or the commission? What happens if it's not clear?
1: So the law intestacy comes into play and that specifies entitlement. So we've just gone through the example of the husband and the five daughters, where the law intestacy would say the husband was entitled to inherit that. If, say, we had a situation where the husband had predeceased the his wife, who was the crofting tenant, and we were dealing with the five daughters. So in, in that situation, the five daughters would be entitled On intestacy equally to get the croft. But that then poses the problem because a croft tenancy can only be bequeathed to one person and unless we have the division. Here we've not got a will so there's no division procedure because no one's written that in. So we have a situation where the law is saying all five daughters are equally entitled to share in the croft tenancy but they can only really share in the value of that Croft tenancy, not obtain the Croft tenancy themselves. So, in that scenario, the five daughters would either have to come to a family arrangement, whereby one of them becomes the Crofting tenant, and they agree who that is, um, maybe on the basis that that one compensates the other financially or whatever, or you know they could come to an arrangement where they agreed that one of them would become the tenant would then exercise the right to purchase and then would transfer the title into all five names Mm -hmm. you know but that would be the five of them collectively agreeing to a system that would ensure that the croft was retained in the family and uh, however they came to to agree and however they want to do that and they can do that amongst themselves without problem but if they couldn't reach an agreement on that basis you know four of them wanted money paid to them to the value of their fifth share and the one who wanted to retain the croft simply didn't have the money to pay them uh, you'd probably end up in a situation where there was no option but for the croft to be sold on the open market and for the proceeds just to be split five ways. And, you know, again, you often see that happening. But again, if that was not a tenanted croft, but was an owned craft, mm-hmm. then that croft could have been left in a will to all five. Although that then begs the question, what happens with the grazing share?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unless it's in Shetland.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, because if you had an owner-occupied croft with a deemed croft grazing share you could easily leave the five daughters a fifth share in the croft they would all own the croft equally amongst them but you would have to deal with the grazing share separately because the grazing share could only be held if it was a deemed croft in the name of one individual so you would have to in a will you would still have to specify one of the five daughters to hold the grazing share.
0: Just going back a step, could you explain what makes something heritable property and what makes it movable?
1: So a croft is always going to be heritable and that is because it is land and it's a a heritable property and whether that's held in tenancy or it's held as owner-occupied it's still classed as heritable because it is land effectively so anything that is seen as you know a house an area land that's either held on a lease or held on a a, a title is heritable anything that is movable would be your livestock your tractors your contents of a house anything that you can pick up and carry away i suppose uh, or drive away or <laughs> you know move would be classed as a movable whereas you couldn't pick up the croft or the house and move it somewhere else that might be a very kind of simplistic way of looking at it, and maybe not a very legalistic way of looking at it. I'm sure if I looked up a legal definition of heritable movable property, I'd be saying something completely different. But uh, in simplistic and explainable terms, uh, I hope that describes it adequately.
0: Yeah, no, that makes it easier, definitely. Brian, what happens if the croft isn't transferred within the one year or the two year period?
1: so if it is an testate situation where you've got a will and you've got the one year period if you fail to notify the landlord within the one year period then the bequest becomes null and void so that's quite significant at the end of the one year period and then falls into intestacy and has to be dealt with according to the law of intestacy as opposed to whatever was specified in the will. So that could have you know, unintended consequences on the part of the bequester because the procedure wasn't carried through. And in the case of a intestate estate where you would have to notify the landlord within two years, If you've not carried out that notification, then technically the landlord could seek to terminate the tenancy. Although there is the ability to seek to extend by agreement the period of two years for a longer period. So again, there are potential consequences of not carrying out the correct steps timelessly. And whilst one year and two year might seem like a long time, it can go past quickly. And you sometimes get estates where people just haven't contacted the lawyer and haven't dealt with anything for a long period because they didn't think they needed to do so immediately. Uh, and indeed, that is effectively what happened in the, the court accession session case I mentioned earlier, which went on for many years with the the correct procedures not being carried out. Although the fact that the landlord had been notified was seen as sufficient to avoid him being able to terminate the lease. So, you know, really the important point here is make sure you get that notification done timelessly.
0: Brian, maybe what are your top tips? Do you have some top tips that you can give us?
1: So the the Law Society used to have a little marketing slogan uh, many years ago, which was, it's never too early to call your solicitor. So if we follow that Law Society marketing slogan, when it comes to crofting and succession, that's never too early to call your solicitor. So get in touch with your solicitor, look at putting things in place. You have to explain your particular circumstances so that you can then get legal advice around what you should be doing for your circumstances, depending on what your setup is with crofts, whether they're tenanted, owner-occupied, who the beneficiaries you have in mind are there may be things that your solicitor will say to you, you know, rather as making a will now doing this, why not buy the craft? Why not divide the craft? Why not do things in advance that will make life easier or make it a lot simpler to effect your wishes rather than create a will that's going to be quite complicated and might end up not having the effect you want it to have Especially if you're dealing with a tenanted croft and the potential of having to divide it, for example.
0: No, that's very good advice. Thank you very much, Brian, for some clear explanations. And I hope that has helped people to plan ahead and get in touch with their solicitor. If folk want to contact you, Brian, what's the best way to get in touch?
1: You can find us via the website on inksters.com you can contact me through our office in Glasgow by email on brian by telephoning 0141 229 0880 and hopefully through one of those means you would be able to get a hold of me.
0: That's great, thank you very much. If you have any topics you'd like covered on this podcast then please do get in touch, we'd love to hear from you and please subscribe to hear the next episodes and also have a look at some of our other FAS podcasts. There's Thrill of the Hill and Stock Talk, which have lots of good and timely information which will be of interest to crofters and hill farmers.
1: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business, and more brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.